Good morning and I just want to welcome you once again. Thank you so much for joining us. We're going to carry on this morning with the series on the fear of God. This time I want to look at the holiness of God. One of the most famous sermons ever preached in America was by Jonathan Edwards and he preached during one of the most intense outpourings of God's spirit in American history known as the Great Awakening. And Edwards had previously preached the same sermon in his own congregation with little effect. However, when he's led to preach it again in Enfield, eyewitnesses describe how the fire of God fell. There was great moaning and crying throughout the church building. People were, were asking, what shall I do to be saved? I'm going to hell. What shall I do for Christ? And so on. And such was the outcry that there were times when Edward had to stop speaking because the shrieks, the cries were so piercing and amazing. The sermon was entitled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And it describes in the most graphic imagery the horrors of the relentless punishment of the wicked in hell and the divine anger of God. Today we rarely, if ever, hear anyone preach like this. Perhaps the reason is because we prefer to think of ourselves as a, a more upbeat generation or we just simply scared to offend. Whatever the case, the majority of sermons preached in the UK today are more about self-improvement and with little mention of judgment. And sometimes there's even an encouragement to have a more broad-minded view of sin. So the idea of a holy God who upholds justice and who is angry with sin is rarely talked about. And even if we do talk about it, we we prefer to believe that his love and mercy will override his holy justice. It's not overly surprising that this attribute, this holiness of God, causes us to struggle more than, than any of the other attributes. You see, we can grasp something of the, the greatness of God. We can certainly be comfortable with his love and with his mercy. But to begin to understand God's holiness is often beyond our comprehension. Yet as we, as we have been exploring what it means to fear God, it is essential that we begin to appreciate the extent of God's holiness and, its, and, and that application for us. After all, Holiness, more than any other attribute, gives us an understanding of why we should fear God. So if we were to take a moment and just reflect on God as God, I think the conclusion that we must come to is this. If God is holy at all, if he is even the smallest amount of justice within his character, how could he be anything else but angry with us? After all, we do we not constantly just violate his holiness? Do we not insult his justice and make light of his grace each and every day? And I think, I think Jonathan Edwards understood what we struggle to understand. That the consequence of God's holiness means unholy people have indeed got a great deal to fear from a holy God. However, 
I think it's also important to emphasize that when Edwards was preaching this rather strong sermon, he did not do it to frighten people or even to shock people. Instead, he wanted to warn them of the consequence of facing the wrath, the anger of God. And and he preached out of compassion. He wasn't trying to lay a guilt trip on anyone. If you ever get a chance to read through the entire sermon, you will discover just the the relentlessness of the the warnings that are coming through in it. It's it's a heartfelt cry to take heed of the dangers that people are in who don't have faith in Jesus Christ. Let me just give you a little flavour of it. Edwards writes, Your wickedness makes you as if you were heavy as lead and to tend downward with great weight and pressure towards hell. And if God should let you go, you would immediately sink and swiftly descend and plunge into the bottomless gulf and your healthy constitution and your own care and and, and prudence and the very best contrivance and all of your righteousness would have no more influence to hold you and to keep you out of hell than the spider's web would have to stop falling rock. And Edward finishes his sermon with an application that just highlights the central message that a holy God is also a wrathful God. And he stresses that God's anger is divine, that God's wrath is fierce and is everlasting. And his conclusion is that if God is to be believed, we must face the awful truth that someday his furious anger will be poured out. And Edwards is right. Now, I do get that that we're not used to listening to sermons like this. It, it, it goes against our sensitivities. I'm fully aware that some of you will be struggling with the strong language. And in particular, you'll be struggling to get your heads around the fact that God is an angry God of justice. And preachers and, and church leaders, well, we have got a lot of responsibility in this because surely the main reason for people struggling with God's justice is rooted in a failure of the evangelical church to fully teach and preach on the holiness of God. The result is that, that the majority of Christians think of God as only a sweet God, a God of love and compassion. And yes, while, while those are the characteristic, characteristics of God, He's also holy, a God of wrath who rightly and justly punishes sin. Before we go any further, let's turn to God's words. Obviously a good place to go. Let's see what the scriptures have to say. And one of the most wonderful, beautiful descriptions of the majesty and the excellence of God is found in a song that's sung by Moses in Exodus chapter 15 and verse 11. The Israelites had safely crossed over the Red Sea because God had miraculously opened it up. But not only was Israel safe, the Egyptians were also defeated. In fact, they're dead. So Moses worships God and this is what he sings. He says, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? What does Moses mean when he refers to the majestic holiness of God? Well, it's certainly a reference to God's transcendence. He is above all and infinitely so. But it's more than that. 
is also a reference to him being separate, which is actually the primary meaning of holiness. But there's still more because it, it also describes his purity, the absence of sin. And God's holiness is his transcendent separation and absolute purity. And this attribute, holiness, is his glory and his beauty. However, it's when we turn to Isaiah and to Revelation that we see the real significance of it. In Isaiah 6 verse 3 we read, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. In Revelations 4 verse 8, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And you don't need me maybe to just say the obvious, but, but this attribute, God's holiness, is the only one that is repeated three times in describing God, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. In fact, so important is God's holiness to himself that he singles it out again as one as the one attribute that he swears by. Psalm 89 verse 35, once for all I have sworn by my holiness. He says a similar thing in Amos chapter 4 and verse 2. Stephen Charnock, reflecting on these, on these verses, writes, No other attribute could give an assurance parallel to it. Holiness is God's very life, for he swears by his life and by his holiness. Holiness is the crown and beauty of all his perfections. His power is a holy power. His wisdom is a holy wisdom. Without holiness, his patience would be an indulgence. His mercy, fondness, his wrath, madness, his power, tyranny, and his wisdom, mere subtlety. As Luke 1 verse 49 says, holy is his name. Therefore, it should be no surprise to discover that God's holiness is displayed in all that he does. Psalm 145 verse 17, the Lord is righteous in all his ways and holy in all his works. And, and we see this right from the very beginning of creation when God pronounced that all that he has made was very good. He made man upright and he created him in this image and in the likeness of himself. So, so God's holiness is displayed in all that he does, in his law, in his commandments. All of God's laws, which includes the outworking of his justice, are simply a reflection of his holy nature. His commands give direction to his people, but not only do they give us benefits and give us direction they also display God's character Romans 7 verse 12 so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good read a similar thing in Psalm 19 and scripture is very clear that God's divine justice is rooted in his divine holiness and righteousness Stephen Charnock adds a God with the least degree of unholiness, even the smallest amount, would be a monster. More of a devil than a God. God is holy, holy, holy. 
but the place where we see God's holiness displayed in indisputable clarity is at the cross. And God's holiness is most wonderfully and perfectly seen in the redemption and in the restoration of humanity. A.W. Pink says that the atonement displays God's infinite holiness and abhorrence of sin. And there's nowhere else where we can see God's we can see God's holy righteousness and his hatred of sin more clearly than when he punished his own son. At the cross we see just unmistakably that God is holy and that he hates all sin. Sin must be punished. To quote Pink again, God has often forgiven sinners but he never forgives sin and the sinner is only forgiven on the grounds of another having borne his punishment. As Hebrews 9.22 reminds us, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And there is this apparent brutality to God's judgment on sin that, that just doesn't sit comfortable in a postmodern world in which we live. Which means that there are many people today who struggle with some of the more violent parts of the Bible and they deal with them in many different ways. Some use them to, as a justification to just reject Christianity altogether. Some try to soften the Old Testament stories by explaining them as religious parables. Others remove the parts they don't like and they describe them either as outdated or myth. Still others go even further and argue that the God that we read about in the Old Testament is a bad-tempered, unpredictable God who bears no similarity to the loving God of the New Testament. However, the Bible is very clear. There is only one true and living God. So how do we deal with these difficult stories, these difficult passages in the Bible? Well, let's, let's have a look at one of them. The story of Uzzah is perhaps one of the most challenging passages in the Old Testament. Read about it in 1 Chronicles chapter 13. And the story begins with David becoming king of Israel. And as king, he wants to just consolidate his kingdom. So he decides to bring the Ark of the Covenant back to its rightful place in the heart of the nation. The Ark was Israel's most sacred treasure. It was a sacred chest made of acacia wood overlaid with gold inside and out. Four golden rings were fastened to its feet so that poles could be inserted through them in order to carry the chest. The lid was made of pure gold and mounted on top of it at each end of the chest were two gold cherubims facing each other with their wings spread upwards towards heaven. It was described as the throne of God, the sacred seat of the Most High. And David knew that the ark was the rallying point for the nation. It had been created and constructed under the direction of God himself and it, it was supposed to be kept in the Holy of Holies in God's temple but it had been captured by the Philistines taken off to the pagan temple of Dagon and while it was gone it is said that the glory of God had departed from Israel. Eventually the ark was returned and had been placed in safekeeping but now finally the time had come for it to be restored to its rightful place in Jerusalem. It was time for God's glory to return to the nation once again. So plans had been made to move it 
Let me pick up the story. We're in First Chronicles chapter 13, verse 7. We read, They moved the ark of God from Abinadab's house on a new cart with Uzzah and Ahio guiding it. David and all of the Israelites were celebrating with all of their might before God, with songs and with harps, lyres, timbrels, cymbals and trumpets. When they came to the threshing floor of Kidon, Uzzah reached out his hand to steady the ark because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah and he struck him down because he had put his hand on the ark. So he died there before God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And this, this story raises lots of difficult questions. But actually, it's probably no surprise to any of us that David, even though David is described as a man after God's own heart, was furious with God. And most of us can identify with how David's feeling. Because like David, we prefer verses in the Bible that describe God as being slow to anger and, and long-suffering. However, on this occasion, within seconds of Uzzah touching the ark, God explodes with fury. There's no doubt about it. This is a difficult story to digest. And actually, it becomes even more challenging if you've been taught that God's only attributes are love, mercy and kindness. So if that's your understanding of God, you will be protesting bitterly over this execution of Uzzah. But I think it's fair to say that, that most of us, that for most of us, this story offends our sense of justice. It just doesn't seem right. So when we read about that joyous day of celebration, the Ark of the Covenant returning to Jerusalem, God's glory is being restored to the city of, of to this temple and to the city of Jerusalem. This, there's music in the air, celebrations and dancing. It was, it's just quite the spectacle. But suddenly, without warning, the ox stumbles, the cart wobbles precariously, the ark slides and, and is in danger of falling into the dirt. And, and wouldn't it be unthinkable for such a precious item to end up falling off the chart into the mud on the side of the road? Oz's reaction is almost instinctive. He's a God-fearing Jew and he would do anything to stop the ark from getting damaged, would he not? He reached out his hand to steady the ark to protect the holy object. It's, it's not an act of defiance against God, is it? And when I read this story, I think of him as a hero. As someone who deserves thanks from God, not punishment. Yet, yet Uzzah is lying dead in the dirt, executed on the spot by God. Why? What was Uzzah's sin? And the answer to that question, to answer it, we need to look back at the foundation of the priesthood. See, God had given special commandments and specific jobs to the different tribes of the nation of Israel. 
You see, to be a priest in Israel, you had to be from the tribe of Levi. But it wasn't even that simple because although all priests were Levites, not all Levites were priests. And there's only one special family of Levites, the clan of Kohathites, who were given the special job to carry the sacred articles in the temple. They were the only ones permitted to come near these holy objects. Read about it in Numbers chapter 4. And you need to remember that the tabernacle was basically a tent. It was portable. So when the tribe of Israel moved, they brought the, 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 they brought the tent with them. And when that happened, there were very strict instructions about how the tabernacle and in particular how the holy vessels, including the Ark of the Covenant, should be transported. Numbers chapter 4 verse 15 we read, after Aaron and his sons were finished covering the holy furnishers, furnishings and all of the holy articles. And when the camp is ready to move, then, only then, are the Kohathites to come and do the carrying. But they must not touch the holy things or they will die. In fact, that's where we are told that they not only should not touch them, but they shouldn't even Look at them. Now Uzzah was probably a Kohathite and so he, he would have been well trained and he would be continually instructed in all that is required of him to do according to God's commandments. The bottom line was he would have known exactly what his duties were. He would have understood that God had clearly said that touching the Ark of the Covenant was a capital offence. Don't touch and there was no excuse. There was, there's no emergency situation that could justify the breaking of this commandment. In fact, even the construction of the Ark of the Covenant itself was with its gold rings and its long carrying poles made it very clear that the Ark should not be touched. Only the poles could be touched and only by one tribe. This was how the Ark was to be carried and let me emphasize the word carried see there's no provision made for this ark to be transported on a cart even though it's probably a much faster way of getting it around it was not allowed the truth is the ark should never have even been on an ox cart in the first place you see when Uzzah reached out his hand and he touched that holy object it wasn't it wasn't an heroic act. It was an act of disobedience, of sheer arrogance, the sin of presumption. And such is the transcendent separation and purity of God's holy presence. He does not even permit his holy throne to be touched by anyone or anything that is contaminated with evil. Uzzah, contrary to what we would like to think, was not an innocent man. He was not punished without warning. He had disobeyed God's law. This was an act of rebellion. It was disrespect. It was disobedience. It was dishonouring the name, the holy name of God. God's divine judgment was justified. And even though the suddenness and the finality of this execution surprises us, maybe even shocks and offends us, we need to ask why do we struggle so much with this story? The reason? 
we don't understand the majesty and the greatness of God. We don't appreciate the seriousness of sin and we have a distorted view of justice and grace. But fundamentally, we don't understand that God is holy. And God's justice always was, is and will be forever an expression of his holy character. What God does is always consistent with who he is, R.C. Sproul. He is holy. And God always plays by the rules. The problem is we don't. We arrogantly forget that God is the supreme judge of the entire universe and there is no corruption with him. He does not make mistakes. He shows no partiality and all of his actions are rooted in his absolute purity. Therefore he is incapable of acting in an unholy way. So as Abram said in Genesis chapter 18, 25, we can be sure that the judge of all the earth will do right. However, God does not always act with justice. Think about it. I'm not saying that God is unjust. He doesn't always act with justice and we should be rejoicing because sometimes sometimes he acts with mercy and all of scripture old and new testament alike display this astonishing grace of god but we have become so used to god's mercy and grace that we that we have forgotten that god is not obligated to give us the gift of life at creation, when God breathed life into Adam and Eve, they were given one instruction. They were to obey God. And they were told, if you sin, you will die. And the penalty of sin has been made very clear. It's been clearly given. Once you sin, you will lose the right to life. And this is confirmed by Paul in Romans chapter 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death. In fact, in Genesis chapter 2, we are told that the penalty, the penalty for sin was not only death, but immediate death. This is how serious sin is. It is cosmic treason. It's rebellion against God, which, which means even the smallest sin is an act of defiance against the authority of God, an insult to his holiness, an indictment of his character. But in our fallen, sinful state, we want to downplay the consequence of sin and even question God's justice. R.C. Sproul says that we tend to think of justice in a positive sense as something we deserve. It's our right, my rights. But let's consider for a moment, perhaps with the help of an, with the help of an illustration, Suppose, suppose a child is murdered here in Cheshire. There'd be an outcry, and of course rightly so. You, like everybody else, would be, would be demanding that justice is done. So as soon, as soon as that murderer is caught, you want him to be brought to trial. You want to see him convicted and sentenced to a severe punishment as soon as possible. However, 
Suppose the judge decides to be overly lenient and to let the murderer get off with a very, very light sentence. Again, you can imagine the reaction of the community. They would, there would be screams of protest. You would be enraged. After all, justice has not been done. The guilty person hasn't received the punishment that is required. But what if we were to turn it all around for a moment? What if you were the murderer? How would you feel? What would you want? You wouldn't want justice. You'd want mercy. You'd want the judge to show leniency. You would not want to receive what you actually deserve. And I think we forget that there is no one righteous. Romans 3, 10, not even one. Not one of us. We are actually guilty sinners and justice is not on our side and the sentence will has been been very clearly handed down we deserve the death penalty so so do you want to see justice done no you want mercy and so do i but here lies the problem god's justice is a holy justice a perfect justice and sin cannot be ignored by a holy God. But we have this warped view of sin that we actually believe we deserve something else other than the wrath of a just God, yet we've got no right, we've no reason even to think that way. Hans Kung, writing about God's harsh judgment of sin in the Old Testament, says, says the mysterious aspect of the mystery of sin is not that sinners deserve to die, but rather that the sinner continues to exist. And what we really should be asking ourselves is why am I still here today? How on earth can a holy, righteous God, knowing what I did, what I thought, what I said yesterday, not have killed me in my sleep last night? Why has he not destroyed each and every one of us? Why, 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 God, do you hold back your judgment from me? And when you wrestle with that question, when you start to appreciate the holiness of God and the consequence of sin, when you understand that you've committed treason against the extreme exalted ruler of this universe, to make matters worse, you've done it again and again and again. It's only then that you will fully appreciate the outrageous mercy and grace of God. See, God has not dealt with you in perfect justice. Not as he should have, not as you deserve. Instead, he has extended his mercy to you at the cost of his one and only beloved son, Jesus Christ. The cross was the most horrible and yet the most beautiful example of God's wrath. It was, it was the most just and the most gracious act of all times. Justice was seen when Jesus first of all willingly took upon himself the sin of this world and once Jesus had done this, once he had voluntarily become the Lamb of God carrying your sin and mine, he became the most grotesque thing in the universe. Then in righteous justice God poured out his wrath on this obscene thing. On the cross, 
Jesus took what justice demanded from you. And the majesty of his grace was displayed for all to see. At the cross we see justice and grace. We see wrath and we see mercy. And when Jesus died we are told that the temple of the curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. This curtain that separated God from his people has been removed. The sacred place with its holy vessels that had been responsible for Uzzah's death was now open. Repentant sinners could enter into the very throne room of God. Why? By faith you can be made clean by the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus has opened up the way for you to come into God's holy presence. Actually it's even more mind-blowing than all of that. You are invited to come. Hebrews 10 19. Since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with a full assurance that faith brings. But let's not forget, see, even if sin had never entered this world, it would have been right to fear God and to bow before him in reverence and awe. But sin did enter this world and because of the divine purity and absolute holiness of God, he reveals himself as a sin hater, as a just punisher of sinners. Yet he also reveals himself through Jesus Christ as a merciful and a glorious, gracious saviour. So we must bow in awe at his holiness, but also stand in amazement at his love. Does such grace not demand the deepest of heartfelt gratitudes, adoration and just fear of Almighty God? You know, as I prepared this, I find myself <laughs> asking some difficult questions. I've been particularly challenged by Stephen Charnock's words about grace. He writes, grace knows no obligation otherwise grace would no longer be grace. God may extend it or withhold it as he pleases and if we demand what is due to us we might as well demand our further misery and punishment for that is what God is obliged to give us. So I have wondered, I've wondered why I struggle so much with God's justice. I've wondered why there are times when I, I feel sometimes even just blasé about God's grace. I wonder, I wonder if we have become so accustomed to living under grace that we, we expect it as our right. Do we take it for granted so much so that grace no longer amazes us? But grace must never be assumed. God's grace is not without limit because there will be rare but dramatic occasions just like when Uzzah died by touching the ark that warn us to fear God. Yes, while you should enjoy the benefits of his grace, you should never forget his justice and you dare not forget the gravity and the seriousness of sin that contrast with the perfect holiness of the Lord God my conclusion 
is that just because God is a long-suffering and patient God, it does not mean that he has not set a limit on his patience. He has warned us over and over again that one day his judgment will be poured out. One day Jesus is going to return. So I need to warn you. I need to call you to repent, to confess your sin, to come to Jesus. See, when you understand the true nature and the character of God, you will begin to grasp the true enormity of what happened on the cross and the sacrifice that Jesus made for you. And, and as you comprehend God's holy character, you will better understand the serious nature of your sin and helplessness and appreciate that helpless sinners can only survive by grace. So even though the natural instinct of our hearts and our mind is to rob God of his power and his holiness, to assassinate his character, you would do well to remember that your strength really is completely futile. Without the incredible mercy of God, you are lost. And, I, and while I would like to play down God's anger and to ignore his his justice, his holiness, wrath and justice are all aspects of his nature. Yet the wrathful hands of God are truly gracious hands. They alone have the power to rescue you from certain destruction. The truth is, you cannot love a holy God in your own strength. It's not possible. There is only one way to love him. You need to be born again of the Spirit of God unless God pours his love into your heart. Unless you receive his grace to change your wayward life and to restore your soul, you will not love him, adore him or fear him with the reverence and with the awe that he deserves. To love a holy God requires his soul awakening grace, a grace that can melt even the hardest sinner's hearts. So listen, this morning if you are in Christ, if you've been redeemed by his precious blood, if you have received him by faith and you're born again of the Spirit of God, you are saved. You are no longer dead in sin. You're not under the, the judgment of God. You have been made alive in Christ. For Christ alone is the source of holiness. So we must earnestly seek holiness from him. Let your daily prayer be for him to sanctify you completely. So that your whole spirit and soul and body will be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The thing is, the more time you spend in his word, the more you will get to know him. And the more that you get to know him, the more deeply you will appreciate his purity, his holiness, and you will grow in dependence on his grace. And as you live in the fullness of his grace, the more you will obey, the more you will adore, and the more you will grow in a reverent 
fear of him. Heavenly Father, hallowed be your name. We give you glory. We give you honour. And we give you praise. And Lord God, we bow before you in surrender. We give our lives to you. The one who is holy, holy, holy. The one who is above all. The one who is glorious. The one who is majestic in every way. And yet the one who came to a cross and poured out your mercy and poured out your grace that we may have life. And so, Lord God, we rejoice in you. And yet we fear you and we humble ourselves before you. And we say glory and honour belongs to you. Amen.